Hi, everybody. This is Gene Nathan, and it is Crosstown Conversations. Guess what we're talking about on the top of the show today? I'm sorry. I know you're hearing about it from all over the place, but we're going to take a, 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 a special angle on it because I've got the legendary, famous author, John Barry, who wrote the book Rising Tides that really gave us the backstory on the um, the huge Mississippi flood of 27, but he's also done some other monumental books about things such as the huge, very bad um, epidemic of 2018. And I'm fascinated to hear the comparison of that one with the one we're dealing with and the factors that were involved with it. So I think I have John Barry on the line, do I? Uh, you do. You misspoke. You meant 1918. You what said did I say? I said 20. Oh, gosh. Yeah, the 1918 influenza pandemic is, is what uh, people are Referencing. concerned about and comparing yeah. coronavirus to. Okay, so uh, here's, here's how I want to look at the comparison for openers, and then we'll go wherever our conversation takes us. But what I'm wondering, uh, in, in this particular virus, an an important factor has been the slowness of testing, the slowness of the state, the U.S. bureaucracy accommodating the kind of um, uh, approach that would move things faster so that we would actually know uh, in, in truth, who has the virus and, and where it's coming from and where it's going and, 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 and try to figure out a more effective way of uh, reducing the spread of it. So um, did that happen? Was that part of why the 2018 epidemic was so bad? I know it was a really nasty virus, but was there the same kind of bureaucratic sluggishness? Uh, just a... Uh yeah, you said 18 again. You, again, you meant 1918. 1918, uh, 1918, 1918, 1918, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, first let me tell your listeners that I've been involved, you know, after the influenza came out 15, more than that, years ago. I got involved in the, well, the pandemic planning for federal government. And, and several state governments. So, it, it, you know, I actually might know a little bit about this stuff. Uh, um, the, hold the on a second, John. John. In 1918, it was quite a bit different. But as far as the world goes right now, the U.S. has had the worst. Um, excuse me, John. John, can you hold on a second? Um, we're having some kind of an audio problem. You're you're coming in and out. I don't know whether it is on your end or ours. It's probably on your end. Are you in a bad location? Can you get? Are you on a on a cell phone? I am. Can you get uh, to a better location where the signal will be a little bit more consistent? Because we're getting you're dropping out okay, a lot. Let me uh, try. Uh, Try uh, 529-7883. Uh, uh, guys, did you hear that? Uh, Jeffrey Gay gave you a different phone number. 529-83. I'm sorry. Say that again because you just dropped out again. Hello? Okay, well, we're... 
John, are you are you okay? All right, so uh, we're going to catch him in just a second. You know, let's set the stage a little bit because we can. I, I, I didn't try to do that because I wanted to really jump right into um, the experience last time. But just to kind of catch us up, and I'm sure uh, many of you have been following this closely and others just don't want to hear about it anymore. But the truth of the matter is we still have absolutely Hello? no clue. Oh, no, Ann, that's me. Okay, bye. Okay. What was that on the phone? John, are you there? Yeah, I am. Sorry about that. Hallelujah. That's okay. I was just, let me just finish my sentence. I was just saying, uh, without a doubt, we are um, not seeing progress in really getting the test count up still to this day, despite all the um, predictions in Washington about when we're going to have a lot of tests available. People are still being turned away uh, from getting tests if they don't have like a multiplicity of symptoms. I'm saying, why do we have to wait until someone's almost dying to get a test. Um, so with that, let me just go back to the, my question to you. Was this kind of bureaucratic stalling or, or ineffectiveness a factor in what was such a really bad epidemic? And if you might just start by, uh, you know, again, telling folks that are listening who are not familiar with the 1918 epidemic, just how bad it was. Well, in 1918, a new respiratory virus entered the pop, human population, spread around the world, and killed between 50 and 100 million people, uh, which if you adjust for population, that would be equivalent to 225 to 450 million people today. Uh, the overwhelming majority of them died in a, an incredibly short period of maybe 14 or 15 weeks in the fall of 1918 into uh, late December, early January. Uh, it was influenza. Uh, the case mortality rate in the developed world was only about 2%, uh, although it was much higher in the less developed world, not because medical care was any better, uh, but because in the, in the West, people had seen other influenza viruses and Therefore, their natural protection, their immune system could do some, was of some use uh, in less developed parts of the world. They may have never seen an influenza virus before, and, and they were totally vulnerable to it. Uh, you know, for it's estimated that in Russia, for example, 7% of the entire population died. And in more remote areas like Western Samoa, an island in the middle of the Pacific, 22% of the entire population died. And in, in some really isolated areas, whether it was a village in, in Africa uh, or uh, Eskimos in, in Alaska, uh, you could go to these villages and find everybody dead. Uh, not necessarily because of the virus, but because of everybody got sick at the same time and no one could even keep people hydrated. Uh, so it, it was lethal, even even in the United States, although the case mortality was only about 2% in the West. 
675,000 Americans died, and again, that is, the population was a lot smaller, so that would be equivalent to about 2 million people today. So, John, uh, let me just say that you said only 2%, but from what we've been hearing, um, most of our, epide- our smaller, um, more average epidemics uh, are under 0.1% of the that's population. That's correct for influenza, so, seasonal influenza, right. Right, so 2%, that's a lot. That's yeah, about 20 times as deadly as ordinary seasonal influenza. So what was the story? Uh, you know, was this it virus, just a- you know, we're hoping to keep it under 1%. Uh, that would be the goal. Uh, one of the most important numbers coming out of China, which is not getting any attention, is that in Wuhan itself, the case mortality is 5.8%, but in the rest of China, it's 0.7%. And it's, again, not because medical care is any different from one part of China to the other, so much as it is that the medical system, the health care system in China is completely overwhelmed. There are basically no intensive, or were when, when it was at its peak, there were no intensive care unit beds available without, you know, respirators, uh, without intensive care support systems. Uh, people were dying at a much higher rate than if they had these things available to them as they did in the rest of China. Uh, so the goal of what we're doing now in terms of the so-called social distancing and so forth uh, is to keep people apart so not as many people get sick at the same time and therefore the stress on the health care system will not be as great. So if someone needs an intensive care bed, they will be able to get them and have a much higher chances of survival and recovery. Okay, so um, that explains a lot, of course, about um, how people are being dealt with in, in terms of being able, for example, to get tests and being turned away because they don't have a, a, a um why uh, a wide enough, deep enough cluster of symptoms to justify a test? It, or is that really the reason, or is it just that they just haven't got those tests No, I out? mean, that, you know, I was sort of giving you a broad overview of the situation and didn't really answer your question how that you get back to it. I mean, we have the worst record in the developed world here in the United States on testing. And there's, at this point, really no excuse for it. You and know, you mean- suddenly... You're about to get much, much better because all these commercial labs have tests that are about to come online if they're not online already. And, uh, you know, it it will get better soon, but we are way behind the curve. You know, clearly there are many cases that have not registered because they haven't been tested. Uh, People in the preparedness community uh, weeks ago, uh, many weeks ago, like in January, uh, you know, I'm still uh, sort of a member of that community. I still talk to other folks in pandemic preparedness, uh, and we were, they, we were, they were upset then in January at the testing standards that CDC was uh, imposing. Uh, I thought there should have been much wider testing than there was, and unfortunately, uh, that turns out to have been the right position. Well, on the other hand, um, uh, of course, it, it, I think I 
I'm sure there were other people who were saying this, but I can recall very clearly um, in the beginning of this, two, three weeks ago, when I saw an article in um, The Advocate uh, that said um, there were no cases in Louisiana yet. And I'm saying, really? How, how, how in the world would you know? Because we're not testing, A. And B, we just had, I don't remember the final numbers on how many people came in from Mardi Gras, but it had to be over 500,000 people or somewhere in that vicinity. And I'm saying, really? Nobody came in here with coronavirus, and now they're finding cases of people returning home to Texas and Arkansas and Tennessee who have cases that they are claiming uh, may have originated at Mardi Gras. They might have come in with them. Who knows? But the lack of testing was, I think, just unbelievably um, dangerous for, for all of us. And so my question to you, back to the original question, was, is this what happened back then in 2018? Uh, was 1918. This part of, did I say 20 yeah. again? Oh gosh, 1918. Is that is that did that happen in 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 um, 1918? Well, of course, they had no tests in 1918. You know, uh, the technology okay. was totally different. In 1918, they did not even know what a virus was. Uh, oh. Whether they they knew they were really small particles, uh. they called them filterable viruses. But they didn't know if they were just really small bacteria or a different kind of organism. And in fact, the research on influenza led to the definition and understanding what a virus was, but that didn't come until the 20s. Uh, and they had no way of, t of testing. It was pretty clear it was influenza. Uh, and I don't know that it would have made any difference uh, back then. Mm. My you know, grandmother. There are other, many other factors affecting what happened. I actually, my grandmother died in that epidemic and left my mother um, uh, without uh, parents, and she wound up working as an au pair most of her childhood for another family as a result of it. So it, it can be devastating, um, of course, when you've lost somebody in your family. But did they try to quarantine back then? Did they try to social distance? They did, did they do they any did, of those? They did try all those things, but the problem was we were at war and the national public health leaders thought the best way to keep the war uh, the morale up for the war effort was to lie so the, that disease was called spanish influenza although it didn't start in spain uh, and you had national public health leaders saying this is ordinary influenza by another name and yet people were dying in 24 hours sometimes not large numbers, but it happened often enough that it clearly did happen. Uh, they were dying with horrific symptoms. You could bleed not only from your nose and mouth, but from your eyes and ears. Uh, pretty, pretty scary. Uh, so the public authorities, both nationally and locally, who were generally speaking, echoing what the national public health people were saying, they were just lying, and, and people knew they were being lied to, and it, it led to a real chaos and real panic. Sounds very uh, familiar because that's what's happening right now. So we have the same dynamic where the federal government has been lying on one level or another for the past few weeks, and that has caused nothing but confusion. And that confusion, I think, has led to people just literally having to back off from doing anything. And so a lot of people, I think, are just saying, well, I'm going to wait and see what's really happening. Well, uh, you know, the, you have to distinguish between the White House itself and the rest of the government. Obviously, people from CDC and the National Institutes of Health, they've been trying to tell the truth. And 
the White House has been minimizing pretty much everything. Uh, not quite outright lying as occurred in 1918, but the effort to minimize the echoing by the you know Rush Limbaugh and Hannity and so forth that this is all a media hype to to destroy the Trump administration. Uh, I mean it's absurd and, and dangerous because. As, as you know, we you get know, to various public health measures that can affect the course of the outbreak and can affect how many people die, the critical is going to be how many people comply with whatever those public health recommendations are. And if you've got 30 or 40 percent of the population believe what Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh say, that this is all you know, overblown media attacks on the Trump administration, and they are not going to pay attention to the public health recommendations. They will not comply with them. They will be dangerous not only to themselves, uh, but to the rest of the community because they'll continue to spread the disease uh, in, in ways that might otherwise not happen. So one of the big questions out there right now in the political front is, will this finally be the instrument to crack that the shell of their their nut their 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 nuts that are putting out um, all this erroneous information will this be the time when some of that 30 to 40 percent realize they've been duped uh, terribly are they going to learn it just simply because there's going to be somebody in their family who's going to get the virus or, or an associate or they're not going to have a job or they're not going to have benefits because they are um, out on the street because uh, uh, of the situation, I mean, it, it, do you see any chance that this is going to break the back of that really dangerous disinformation uh, universe that we've been living in for the past three years? Well, I think we, reality will intrude and will affect, you know, families, uh, at least on this particular issue, they will stop listening, but uh, whether that has any broader impact, whether that transfers to other things, I, I you know, can't protect. We did see Trump the other night obviously take a very different tone than he had been taking. Uh, the speech may not have been very effective, but at least it made it clear that he seemed to be taking this seriously. Except uh, that he's still shaking new. hands. Now, again, the <laughs> speech, you know, there are all sorts of flaws in that speech, but it was a very different tone than this is a hoax. <clears throat> and as things go forward, and as the virus spreads, and it will spread, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I would guess even Trump is going to have to, you know... Stop shaking uh, hands at least. Yeah. Well, you know, we Gosh. can hope. He's such a crazy. Um, John, what are you doing? What you know, you don't you live? Uh, you live somewhere around the French Quarter, don't you? In the quarter, yeah. Yeah, so you're you're in the, a pretty dense populated area with a lot of um, tourists and a lot of uh, uh, venues and restaurants. Here's something that I've been curious about. So, 
You know, uh, we are, my husband is vulnerable. So, you know, he's older. He has an underlying uh, ailment, as they say. He's got MS. So um, we've been trying to be very careful. But I'm dying, for example, this Friday night. I would love to go sit out at a table at Santa Fe. But I'm thinking about the people in the kitchen. I'm saying, are they wearing gloves while they're preparing my food? And is there any kind of stepped-up, um, you know, inspections going on so that it we would know that it's safe to go out to eat? Has that occurred to you? Well, you know, I went out actually last two nights, which is more often than usual for me. Uh, I would say this. I think a public restroom is a very dangerous place. Uh, This virus is not only respiratory, uh, but it also infects the gastrointestinal tract. There is oral fecal uh, transmission. Uh, that seems pretty clear. Uh, so people, you know, go into bathrooms, do what they do in a bathroom, and that's dangerous, not to mention the fact, I don't know about other people, but I'll go into a bathroom and blow my nose. Uh, you know, that's going to spread droplets uh, no matter how careful I am. It's an enclosed space. So that's one very small thing. You know, avoid public restrooms at all costs, not to mention in a modern uh, building, the the faucets are, you know, automatic and you it's almost impossible to get water flow out of them, much less water flow for 20 continuous seconds to really properly wash your hands. Uh, the other thing is discipline, you know, on the hand washing issue. This is going to require a lot more than washing your hands to stop this virus. But washing your hands can have some effect. It's not going to protect you completely, but it does lower the percentage of likelihood that you would get infected. But you've got to do it right, and you have to do it right every single time. You know, 20 seconds may not sound like much, and really a little bit longer would be good. Most people that I, you see washing their hands, they don't wash their hands for 20 seconds. It's a long time. Yeah, uh, I count. You know, I learned from when I was in uh, television news to count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. And that's how you know that you're hitting this, the second mark. So um, I do do 20 1,000s. Uh, you I have to do it every hands. time, all the time. It's a question of simple discipline which is not easy because people, you know, you do it for a week and you get tired of it. You know, what's even harder is not touching your face. I mean, nobody knew how many times they were touching their face until this epidemic came along. And then you suddenly discover that your hands are on your face constantly. That's the hardest thing for me, I found, is keeping my hands off my face. John, um, what is there any one particular lesson? I mean, we've just talked about a lot of things that we know people need to do to try to minimize our danger. But was there any particular lesson that came out of the 1918 epidemic that you think... Yeah, the number one, there were two lessons. You know, number one is to tell the truth. That that is very important. And, you know, as I said earlier, I was uh, part of the working group that, you know, made recommendations on non-pharmaceutical interventions, what they're called, NPIs, what you do when you don't have drugs, uh, you know, to, to mitigate a pandemic. 
uh, our first recommendation, which I kept beating on based on 1918, was to tell the truth so that people pay pay attention to uh, what you're saying. Now that lesson has been incorporated in writing into every single pandemic plan in the United States, federal and state. But well, it still comes down to somebody actually doing it. Uh, you know, the second is the social distancing. It seems clear that cities had a better record who when they intervened and, and did things early. If you wait until it gets serious in your area before you do things like ban public gatherings, it's too late because by then the virus has already spread itself inside the community. And no matter what you do, it's not going to have much impact. Uh, you have to do that fairly early in the course of the outbreak to have effect to prevent the virus from getting widely disseminated, uh, which raises the you know most important and most difficult issue is getting people to comply with those recommendations for a long period of time, because this thing is going to be around for probably months, not just Oh, that was actually my last question. You know, no one's been talking about how long, two things, a virus lasts in an individual and how long is an individual infectious? Because a lot of other kinds of flus and viruses, um, the, the um, uh, inf I don't know what the right word is, the contagious factor for someone who's ill is reduced later in their uh, illness. Is that true in this case or not? And then well, this, it, seems, it seems that uh, you shed more virus early, you know, as you, uh, as your body begins to kill off the virus and take care of the symptoms, you do shed less virus. It's not entirely clear if it is. I don't know the answer and should. Uh, if there is one of the exact period during which somebody is contagious. The reason SARS was easy to contain was because you were not contagious until you were already really sick. So you were flat on your back. Even if you wanted to go out, you couldn't physically do it. So you were not spreading virus through the community. So SARS was actually relatively easy to contain. And that's the opposite in this case, it's right? It's the opposite here. Yeah. This is a, a bad bug, let's just face it. My, so my final question uh, was back to what you commented just a minute ago. of uh, How long uh, can we anticipate that we're going to be having to uh, not have public events, do social distancing? I, you know, I, I, I really don't know, but what I would guess if I had to predict, I mean, number one, everybody's, you know, speculating on whether or not warm weather is going to kill the virus off. It's not going to kill the virus off, but chances are fairly good that it will help for that period because the virus, most virus, you know, it's certainly the case with influenza, uh, the virus lasts longer in cold weather and low humidity, you know, um, outside the body. So that means, obviously, you know, when it get hot weather, high humidity, it, it lasts less long outside the body. So you're less likely to get infected. 
but that doesn't mean the virus is gone. It's going to come back right. uh, when, when the weather changes again. That's, and we don't know that that's going to happen with the coronavirus. We, but there is a know, chance that it's going to roll right back in. There's a reasonable chance, good chance of that, but we don't know for a fact. Right. The other thing is... We don't know uh, anything for a fact. I, I, I would anticipate things being closed. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they're reopened and then closed again. Uh, there's a very good chance it would be a repetitive action on this to try to contain this. Yeah. It, it is, it's not a good situation. It's a serious situation. It is a virus that will kill people and will probably kill a lot of people. Uh, but it's not the bubonic plague that's going to wipe out civilization. It's not n- nothing that serious. It's not the bubonic plague. On that note, <laughs> I'm going to go out on that. That's the first positive thing I heard. Uh, well, there's uh, another positive thing. I think there is a good chance for a vaccine, but it's going to take, take a while. Yeah. A while. So maybe we'll have one before the uh, a fall resurgence of the no, virus. No, not then. Really? Not that fast. Wow. <laughs> All right, John Barry is a fabulous thinker, writer. John, you're working on a book right now on? On everything that's gone into making the Louisiana coast a disaster. Right, and that's another huge thing on the horizon that more and more of us are are becoming cognizant of and and trying to uh, think about how we can help. And I look forward to having you back on um, just as often as I can grab you and get you on the air for a bit. Thank you very, very much for giving me your time. All right, folks, that's John Barry. He wrote the book about the epidemic. He wrote the book about the flooding of our rivers, the, 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 the all... um, uh, Rising Tide is a book that everybody should read about the history of our region because it really shows the underbelly. That's what John specializes in, is showing the underbelly of how things work. All right, moving on. We do have some more cheerful kind of um, material to cover in our show, and we're going to start with one of my absolutely favorite um, public art programs in the city and i have been wanting to do this story now for i don't know as long as i've been seeing these works of art pop up around the city and you're going to know exactly what i mean when i say you know those electric boxes that are on the corners they're plain gray boxes that were so kind of um, ubiquitous but ignored because there was nothing to look at they were they were just gray well this woman who is with me today say your name so i don't mess it up Jeannie tidy Jeannie any tidy um, and some other folks that she pulled together uh, said you know let's do something with those and make them more interesting and consequently you now as you arrive at the corner waiting for the light to change because those boxes actually control when those lights change and don't um, you're going to see flowers and fish and cows and landscapes and Monte Gray Indians and you name it, especially if it kind of reflects the neighborhood around it, right? right. So right. Where, where did this idea come from? And tell me how many boxes now are out there painted, how many are to come, and, and just how are you put, getting this done? This is the kind of thing somebody <laughs> says one night, hey, we ought to paint those boxes, and then it never happens. But you made it happen. Um it's 
started after Katrina, actually, and I just got so depressed over the mounds of trash at the time in Lakeview. And I said, uh, the boxes were all graffitied, people tagged them constantly. So I, I thought of that and I also thought how can I help my artist friends who were also struggling to make a living because a lot of them had been kicked out of their apartments or they raised the rent so high they couldn't afford it anymore so I came up with the idea of taking these boxes and paying artists giving them all the supplies and having volunteers prep the boxes for them and and going out and working with each neighborhood association, we actually work with each neighborhood on the type of artwork they want on the boxes. So people think we just run out and do whatever we want, and that that's not how it works. And the other thing we did, we created a really fair uh, level playing field for the artists. So anybody who signs up with the program they get an email every time we have an rfp or request for artwork and where the box is located and they send renderings and that is sent to a neighborhood representative and our three arts committee people and they let us know which ones they like and give us the high five and so then we work with the artists to set up a time and coordinate that with the volunteers to go out and prep the boxes so it's a lot of work but it has a labor of love we've done 230 boxes now wow and how we, many are there throughout the city there um in the city itself yeah. they're about 500 boxes total. so you have a, you have a little less than 300 to go yeah i do <laughs> <laughs> is that your intention to get well, all well i would like to do all of them and in addition they sometimes get run into by trucks so uh -huh. we have to go out and re redo them uh -huh. uh, or sometimes they quit working so then we have to pay the artist to go back out and redo the boxes so that has happened a few times not what do you mean by uh stopped working why would that affect the surface of the box they just sometimes take the whole box down oh. i don't know i'm not an electric person but yeah. the boxes if you saw the inside of them they're very complicated it looks like a giant circuitry uh, like your electric box at home mm -hmm. but millions of those little yeah. circuit breakers so i'm sure it's just that they aren't working anymore and they have to take them down to go fix them and uh so then we do have to redo them but it's we we've really i love it and people are so uh kind and i just want to tell people out there we have a thirty-nine thousand dollar a year budget which is no money we raise all the money for each box costs 750 dollars to do we won't allow commercialization of the boxes we decided early on that that was just creating you mean more you don't you, you don't like those mercedes signs on the superdome do <laughs> no. i hate those i hate I know, them I, know. I understand the need for them i just hate that we have to commercialize everything yeah i know so it. so yeah. we don't do that but we will do a nod like we did the um box on magazine in washington for the coffee place there and if you ever go by and see it it's coffee growers bringing in the beans and it, it's so it's coffee related but it doesn't have starbucks anywhere or or their name that's good so <laughs> I, I think you know we can do a nod to people without them without 
it looking like just a commercial billboard. Now, I, I, I understand from looking at your material that you also have been involved in the uh, affordable housing issue. Yes. Because you were saying that um, you were trying to help artists who were being... I mean, a, a lot of people in the city think that the artists pushed New Orleanians out. That may have been true in some cases, mm. but then the artists were getting pushed out in return because the yeah. value of the real estate was going up, the mm-hmm. taxes were going up, and, and the, so the prices for renting were going up. It's kind of a very unfortunate side effect of, it, it is of, of, of people wanting to be here in New Orleans. Yeah, it is. And, and, and the other thing is, a lot of people don't know this, but in the 70s, you could live in the quarter. I had a beautiful apartment down there with the balcony, two bedrooms. It was fabulous for $150 a month. What? Now, this is because people didn't really want to live down there at that time. And so all the artists, and I had a lot of friends, they would walk to the square with their carts pushing their carts down, and they all lived right there, most of them. And you never, no never see it now. You never see that. No, no. They don't live in the quarter no, anymore. They can't afford for $2, it. No, yeah. $2,000 a month. What am I talking about? Probably even a lot oh, more than that. A lot more, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's sad. So so what's your view on, on uh, um, some of the efforts to bring in more affordable housing? What aspect of that do you uh, feel is really critical for us to think about and support? I, I think it is so critical for a city to have affordable housing uh, because the people who are doing the main work are getting forced further and further out and they're not going to be able to afford to do these jobs i mean to do a, a, a minimum wage job and then to have to drive miles and miles to get there or even to even to have the um you know transportation is so difficult so when you move further out in the suburbs it's much harder to get into the city and i just don't think we have good transportation that's number one that needs to be really improved and and the and the second thing is that I, I feel like we really missed the boat after Katrina by not freezing rents and not allowing landlords to uh, just <laughs> go up on the rent so ridiculous and i know that they had expenses too because maybe their insurance went up but most of them were not paying that right after the storm so i i feel like it was an opportunity where we could have had some uh asking for rental restrictions to freeze the rent so that they couldn't just go up 10 times more than what they had been paying before. I just yeah, think it, that, it, it that's one of um, quite a few boats that we missed after I the I think uh, storm. so. Another uh, uh, boat that I um, b- bemoan a lot is that we had um, a real surfeit of uh, a whole lot of um, empty schools and churches Absolutely. that could have been put to cultural Good. uses to again right. uh, give not just our artists but creatives in general uh, an opportunity because I believe firmly that instead of um, incentivizing the polluting industries on the river if the state right. were incentivizing our creative industries I, I try not to miss saying this in every show yeah I know um, we, we would be um, we would really be helping our um, existing population and and growing our economy without destroying it uh, eating it from uh, uh, eating our lunch so to speak right um, I love what you're doing I love <laughs> it and um, is there you want to make a, one last pitch for people to help and how can they do that yeah what, where do they and, call? and don't forget give NOLA day which is coming up in May 5th I think it is and 
they greater new orleans foundation puts that on and they will match your donation so it really helps us a lot every year and i tell people you know an arts kit just for the kit is about $250. So by the time we put the primer, we put the paint kit together for the artist and all of their supplies, it's it's a lot of money. And then we pay the artist. So And and we all enjoy it. I I can't imagine anybody who pulls up to a street light and and is sitting there, you know, waiting to move and and has that little moment of of art to look at. Uh, isn't benefiting from it. And and they say that, literally, experiencing art improves your health and your lifespan. So and let's go and with supporting I, the boxes. I, I believe that, and I also believe that the boxes not only bring beauty, but they also slow down graffiti and litter, so that there's hardly any litter by the boxes that have been done, and they're not graffiti. So some of them have been up for 10 years now, the ones in Lakeview. So they, and they still look good because we use really expensive paint. <laughs> what's your, what's your um, website? Or, it, uh, it's cvunola.org www.cvunola.org and CVU stands for Community, Community Visions, Visions Unlimited. Unlimited. Love that right. name too. Okay. Congratulations on oh, what you do you. and thank you. I just I enjoy them every every time I come to a streetlight. So thank you so I really much. appreciate it. And stay in touch with us and let us know how things are going. I will. Thank and when you uh, so give much. Nola rolls around, even though I have to get some money out of that too, so we'll be competing a little <laughs> bit. But I'll support you anyway. Okay. So. <laughs> well, it's hard. Everybody's competing for the same little bit of nuts on the tree. <laughs> so uh, we're yeah. going to continue with a, a little bit of the, the uh, more cheerful aspects. Do I need to pre- take a break now? Okay. So um, introduce yourself. Hi, Jean. I'm Michelle. Uh, Michonne, I run a food tour business called Bon Maman. Uh, which is French for good times. Uh, every time I spell it on the phone, I have to say bon moment. So right. <laughs> yeah. right. uh, the website is www.bonmomentnola.com. Um, so I was originally coming in today to talk about a food tour on the 26th that I do for locals. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my food tour business caters to tourism and locals who want to act like tourists uh, and be tourists in their own city. Um, but about three times a year, I'm trying to host um, local food tours that explore places that have just opened in different neighborhoods so that we that live here can get to know our neighborhoods a little bit better and support small businesses and I, better. I, I think that's so important because I could tell you as not a rabid foodie, but somebody who definitely likes to eat and um, <laughs> loves the, the range of food that we have in our city. And I'm coming out of New York City where it's a pretty damn good food city too, but I've always uh, loved New Orleans food even more because, I don't know, the authenticity and the juiciness. and Well, and we're always changing, uh, you know, the sort of diaspora that happened post-Katrina has changed the food landscape in New Orleans, um, has People that were children of Vietnamese immigrants um, have grown up and opened their own restaurants. That's changing our landscape. And then there's just lots of people moving here and lots of chefs coming up with their own ideas and their own um, 
plans to finally launch their own brick and mortars. Um, so it's always changing and it's really hard to keep up with. And it's really hard sometimes to get tables um, at some of these new places. And because so that's they're, where not, I come in. they're not huge. They're not. No, Antoine's, they're not big. You know? They're not big so, facilities. Uh, yeah, you do have. A, I mean, I, I have a couple of favorites that um, I'm always <laughs> trying to get. Now, when I say I have a couple of favorites, I am really ignorant of the vast uh, a range of the new new places so that's why i particularly love your program because um i, I really every single restaurant that you mentioned in logar district i'd never heard of yeah and i try to keep them a secret because it makes it really fun for people um so we're not going to talk about which ones are planned because they will uh they, they will Discover. find out when they go mm-hmm. um so Part of the joy of that is, and then of course, and then I talk about them after and post them on my website and pictures from them. But um, out of the four places that, or the five places um, that we were going, the uh, two of them have just opened to the public. Most of them are, are real new. So I have to say that this morning I had a come to Jesus moment and had to reschedule it, but it's going to be postponed. Um, I have to issue refunds to everybody. I heard from all of my um, restaurant tours and they agree it's a good idea just out of safety. It's a small gathering, but we don't want to unnecessarily, you know, put anybody at risk. And right. I work in the events industry yeah. the rest of the time. So I do ops and logistics for events. So, you know, it's, it's uh, a hard decision, but um, I'm encouraging people, if they're listening, to definitely go onto my website and join my mailing list so that when I do reschedule, reschedule. this, when things the air has cleared, figuratively and literally, that um, I can get in touch with people and you can be the first to get tickets because it does sell out. It's only a 35-person event. Um, they do sell out. They usually sell out the week before the event, which is now. And so um, it was just a real time to make a decision and, and figure out that the best way to do this successfully is later. So that brings up a subject that I I really want to plumb because Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what percentage of our lives we spend in New Orleans going out to eat, but it's pretty darn high. We all like to do it. It's a number one activity. And it is, again, because our food is so great, both the uh, old time food, the neighborhood street food, the higher end uh, stuff that's being done by all these creative chefs, et cetera, is huge. But... um, I'm trying to figure out, are we going to be able to parse this as we go forward? If if we actually just shut down all the restaurants in the city, um, we'd all have to move the hell out of here because there'd be nobody making any yeah, money Yeah, the all. economic impact. So, is- so what... What are folks in your industry thinking about as ways to look at um, alternatives to literally having to shut things down and close things down? Because I'm thinking, okay... Big events where there's going to be density of people, yeah. that's a problem. Sure. I have an event uh, in later in the spring uh, that we were going to do with Crevasse, our, our art facility down in St. Bernard and um, at uh, our location in the Ford plant. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, we're not going to have like huge crowds. Mm-hmm. If I get 50, 75 people in a huge open area, I, I'm kind of thinking, well, this is kind of okay. And then one of my artists said, well, why don't we, instead of serving food, let folks you know, bring uh, their picnic, their their sandwiches, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so I'm saying, you're in the industry. What are you all thinking about and talking about? You heard me ask the question earlier. I'd love to go to a restaurant tonight because I'd love to sit outside and have – but I'm saying, are, are, is everybody in the kitchen wearing gloves while they're cooking or not? Yeah. Well, restaurants um, are taking this very seriously, um, and they are still encouraging people because they're still open for business at restaurants and bars. Um 
you know, the bigger issue is employees getting paid for sick time off to encourage, discourage them from coming in when they're not feeling well. And there are a couple of restaurants that have stepped up and said on social media, I already they're have that in plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what really needs to happen is um, because that's the highest risk. It's not so much that you're going to be several feet from another table and there's another guest. It's your line cook coming in, um, not feeling well, and then passing that on to other people because he doesn't have a choice because he's got to pay the bills. Um, you know, it, so I, I'm on a Facebook group for, you know, tourism in New Orleans called Beyond Bourbon Street. Beyond and somebody, Bourbon Street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And somebody just asked, uh, you know, I'm coming down there next week, which, you know, is how is the situation? I was like, everything is open for business and they need your money. And that's just kind of where we're all right now is that we're going to have to um, figure out as we come out from underneath this thing, uh, how to support each other. We're all going to be struggling financially. So I don't know necessarily that the money needs to be coming from the community as a whole because we just bailed out banks like that. <laughs> so why couldn't the government help? But you know what so we could, we, we, we could mobilize to ask the government to stabilize the, the pre- economy. The pressure has to be on the state and on the federal yes. government. No doubt about it. That's where it really should come from. However, we could maybe do something because I think everybody is sympathetic to this issue. We all realize. We, you know, well, people are going to step us, up. Most of yeah. us sometime in our lives, I know I did. I worked in restaurants throughout high school and college. I worked as a waitress for for eight, uh, about eight years yeah. in, in New York in, in real big, intense kitchens. So um, I, I know how important um, our tips and those uh, maybe minimum wage sometimes, but with the tips, um, you know, that was a living. That, yeah, that, that, I, th- I think we're going to see a lot of more GoFundMes coming out for people on a personal level. But but what but, about what about if we did something a little bit more proactive and where we have some kind of a almost like a surcharge, or, or let's call it a tip, an extra tip that you can put on your bill for a fund to contribute to um, workers who can't come in. Wouldn't that be I know a- for bars, there's the Barman's Fund. Um, so anybody that's looking to help support bartenders that way i encourage them to look up the barman's fund but uh, you still that but that's, yeah that's still something you have to get on the internet and do and mm-hmm. i don't know about anybody else but i'm on the internet all day it's like <laughs> whenever i can break and get out of it i'm a happy girl yeah so why not just do it in the restaurant and have a little reminder on the menu that says please consider an extra five percent on your tip mm-hmm. for our um uh, I don't know what to call it. You know, CV nineteen, the Rony Fund, the Rona Fund. Right, <laughs> right, something yeah. like that for our workers who can't uh, need to be home. Yeah, I think restaurants can probably do that on their individual level. Um, the restaurant association maybe is the yeah place to go the LRA this, right? the LRA approaching the LRA with this idea so they can circulate it amongst their folks. Um, it's probably a great idea. Because um, you know that's that's how uh, uh, you know not a lot of people really understand all the ins and outs of the New Orleans Tourism Marketing yeah. Corporation and all the politics around that right now. But I was there for the birth of it, and I know that the the way it was born is that um, some of the people in the hotel industry were concerned about the fact that the at the time the Tourism Commission was very convention focused and not supporting leisure weekend holiday Smaller. business. So they created a surcharge on their rooms a self-tax it's called basically mm. it was funneled through the city but they they agreed themselves to ask to have that tax collected so that they could uh, raise some money for marketing the through city. the convention industry 
through the city. I mean, they had to, you know, for the tax collection, Mm. had to go through the city. But it was all of the hotels. It Mm -hmm. was the hotel people primarily um, who put a surcharge on their rooms for the purposes of being able to market uh, the city for off-season, uh, holiday, um, weekends, yeah, yeah, leisure, August, leisure, leisure travel, right? Yeah. It worked. Mm-hmm. It started out generating about $3 million a year. Right now, from what I just recently learned, it was generating about $16 million a year. And that money was being spent on marketing and also uh, supporting cultural events. Now, I don't know how the whole thing is going to shake out because it's in transition, but hopefully it works out well because... Um, Latoya's administration, and, and she came up with this idea of now, uh, as, as the marketing function has been um, moved back to the conventions, uh, uh, to the um, New Orleans and Company, and hopefully that works, and hopefully they now understand the importance of leisure travel, etc., and they'll invest in it. But keeping the uh, organization of the NOTMC uh, and using it for cultural funding, so ho- hopefully that turns into a great thing. It'll really depend on we're going to need it on how it operates. Too, so. But in the, but but what I'm saying is that the restaurant association. If they would bring their leadership together the way the hotel industry did, they could very easily figure out a way to put this fund idea out there. I'm telling you, well, my husband and I are high tippers mm-hmm. because we both worked in restaurants, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so we tip at a high level, mm-hmm. and uh, and we go back to the same restaurants a lot. So we want to, we want to be loved. So we yeah. we put 25 percent on our, our our checks all the time. Well, and you're directly affecting somebody's. Income. Right, I mean, but 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 other people can think deleted. about adding that five percent. But specifically, they'd have to notate their checks or somehow how that would work. Somebody else who's more administratively capable than me mm-hmm. will figure out the how. But it's not that hard. No, I mean literally, you put a note saying, "Please add five percent to your tip." We, well, it's just like when you check out the at the grocery store. It, it just takes know. the restaurant committing that they will take that five percent and not put, put it, it somewhere else. Fund. Yes, yeah. exactly. I think they will. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody from the LRA is listening. <laughs> you know, and I, I could drop a nickel. I'll make a phone call. I don't know the leadership there very yeah, well, but frankly. Yeah. But, you know, I, th- that won't stop me from making a phone yeah. call. Yeah. So that's just one thought. But um, is there anything else out there? Uh, so so do we know that at least people are being more careful in the kitchen? That's my question. I, I mean, I know, I, restaurants I, are, I know that restaurants are taking it very seriously. It's nobody wants to get anybody sick, you know. If, so. Um, the restaurants are open and it, like I said about I mean if if you're worried about it then ask them about it um, your favorite restaurant you know just make sure that they're taking care of their employees because maybe that'll be the push that they need to consider this paid part time off or paid time off um, trend that is emerging it's it that industry the service industry has always been um behind in that uh, their hourlies and of course tipping waitresses to something an hour you know so maybe this will be a good time for that to move forward to change in in line with that um, uh, this is just a curiosity type question so 
Um, why do they pay servers so little and, and other kitchen I mean, that's a whole tipping discussion. Is that because discussion. the margin is so tight on their profit or it's the, what? It's the tipping discussion. It's, it's the moving into paying people hourly in a way that if they don't get tips, they have still have an income. Um, but the onus has unfortunately fallen to the consumer to pay people a living wage um, when it comes to restaurants and bars. So, and people have experimented, as I, I know somebody in New York experimented with opening a $15 an hour, you know, serve staff, et cetera, and no tipping. Um, and it didn't work out for them, but that doesn't mean that it's not, it, that it's impossible. It just, it would take a large cultural movement, and maybe this is that large cultural movement. You know, I've noticed that uh, in, in many cases, the hotels, um, already do the right thing uh, in in require and, and having a um, uh, automatic um, surcharge for mm -hmm. service on their checks. So it, it's not that it's not impossible. It it's can not be impossible. Um, let me. We're going to close out in just a minute. So remind so us of the name of your Yeah, store. of course. It's Bon Moment Nola .com. So sign up today on my mailing list so that I can let you know when we reschedule. You can come eat with us and drink with us. Everything's included in your ticket. And also, I'm sure you do other kinds of events. And yeah, yeah. Join my website list. Also. Mm -hmm. Yep, okay. join my well, list. Well, I hope that you can continue doing maybe some smaller events. I think we yeah. all should think about smaller events for the moment that don't have the density. Yeah, I'm doing my tour guests. So I'm still doing my out-of-towners, but I need, to get with my, I need to get with my locals soon. So we need to celebrate when this is kind of blown over. One more time on the website as we close Bon out. Moment NOLA. Thank you all very much for listening and getting through another conversation on coronavirus. I hate to tell you this, but I will have somebody else on next week from the RAND Corporation, which is the largest research organization in the world that's been working on this as well. So we'll still do a little. We'll, we'll, we're going to keep it up. We're going to. Yeah. We got to keep on talking about it. But other good things happening culturally in the city as well. Gene Nathan for Cross Sound Conversations on WBOK that people are talking about.